Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeats ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. We'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case and pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. Our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I would like to welcome my co-host today, Evelyn. I'll let her say hello and introduce herself. Hi, my name is Evelyn, and I'm a second-year medical student at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. Evelyn, I think you're the earliest in your medical training for someone who has co-hosted the show. So I'm hopeful that we're just capturing you early in your career for a future NID. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Um, and next, I'll introduce our guest today. Dr. Lucy Marquez graduated from Baylor College of Medicine, and she remained at Baylor to complete a residency in pediatrics, a chief resident year, and a fellowship in pediatric ID. She additionally graduated from the University of Texas School of Public Health with an MPH focusing in epidemiology. She currently is an attending physician in pediatric ID at Baylor College of Medicine and practices primarily at the Medical Center campus of Texas Children's Hospital. Additionally, she is the Associate Medical Director for Infection Control and Prevention at Texas Children's. She is also passionate about medical education and teaches a variety of learners, including medical students, residents, and fellows at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. Welcome to the show, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about the cases today, um, as everyone's favorite culture podcast, Lucy, we'd love to hear about a little piece of culture that brings you happiness or joy. Um, so I, as I think about this, I, I think um, Argentine food. So I'm from Argentina originally. Um, and um, specifically, dulce de leche is like one of my favorite things on the planet. So people from Argentina have this um, obsession with dulce de leche. We pretty much like slather it on anything. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like the equivalent of peanut butter here. You find peanut butter in everything. Well, in Argentina, you find dulce de leche in everything. So, but, but in particular, Pancakes with dulce de leche. So those are like in, in Argentina, paint, our pancakes are the equivalent of French crepes. So you would do crepes with dulce de leche and it's delicious. <laughs> that sounds very good right now. Um, but to get us back to the cases, today we're actually sharing a duo of cases of GI illnesses. And we're often discussing these organisms and their overlap on the same differential. So we thought it would be nice to have two back-to-back cases. So I will throw it over to Evelyn to get us started on case one. Okay, great. So today we have a mom who brings in her six-year-old son for a fever and diarrhea. For about the past 12 to 24 hours and overnight, he has been having a fever to 103 degrees Fahrenheit, which has not resolved despite antipyretics. She says that he has also been having a lot of watery, non-bloody diarrhea. He hasn't complained of nausea, but did have a few bouts of abdominal pain overnight. He has had decreased appetite. He has had no other symptoms such as headache, ear pain, cough, upper respiratory symptoms, rash, urinary symptoms, or joint pain. Um, Some social history, he lives at home with his mom, dad, and his older sister, and his sister has a pet turtle named Donicello, but the patient does not interact with him or any other animals. 
Uh, Mom mentioned that three days ago, she had brought her son to a daycare potluck where they enjoyed some burgers and potato salad, a typical summer barbecue affair. There were also some store-bought potato chips, hot dogs, and a friend's homemade apple juice. After the potluck, that's when she noticed her son wasn't eating as much as usual, and then he developed the symptoms that we had mentioned. On physical exam, he is febrile and tachycardic, but has stable blood pressure. Um, He appears uncomfortable with slightly dry mucous membranes, but no oral lesions. The cardiopulmonary exam is normal, with the exception of tachycardia, which we just mentioned. And on abdominal exam, he has mild tenderness to palpation diffusely with no rebound or guarding. He is admitted to general pediatrics for dehydration and management. So with that background, can you talk us through your ID approach for diarrheal illnesses in children, like in this case? Sure. Um, Well, you you gave us some very interesting um, exposures for this patient. So I I love this turtle named Donna Shello. (laughs) It actually reminds me, you know, we... I had a case one time, or at least here we had a case of a child who had salmonella, and he literally had two turtles at home, one named Sam and the other one named Ella. True story. Um, so, of course, you know, it's important to think about, you know, those animal exposures and the other exposures that the patient um, had because it helps you narrow down the possibilities as to the etiology of, of this illness. And so I think the principal thing, obviously, is this child has fever and has diarrhea, Right. Um, and so you told us about the turtle. Um, so of course, salmonella is a consideration. Um, but then you told us this very interesting history of this, uh, was it a picnic or barbecue that he was at? And it sort of, it reads very much like one of those classic CDC um, outbreak investigation sort of things where, you know, they, they go to a location and everybody comes down either with a vomiting or diarrheal illness and you have these certain food products that could have potentially been contaminated. And then the job is to figure out who ate what and who came down with symptoms to try to figure out, you know, which, which product was contaminated. Um, and so, you, you know, you told us about things like um, the hamburgers. So obviously um, ground meat has been associated with some E. coli outbreaks. You told us about some some juices, right? There's also been uh, contamination with E. coli or some of the dairy products. You think about uh, things potentially like a Staph aureus outbreak uh, from an enteral Staph aureus outbreak. So, so all of those things are really important. And and obviously, this patient is um, sort of in a spectrum of illness where he's sick enough to be admitted, right? Because a lot of people with GI illnesses don't necessarily buy them, themselves a ticket to come in house, but um, with this kid having dry mucous membranes, the tachycardia, um, he certainly needs to be admitted for, for fluid management at a minimum. Okay, great. So the next day on rounds, the mother frantically approaches the team saying that she noticed blood in her son's diarrhea. So the stool sample has been sent for culture and labs are drawn. Um, But before getting the results, we wanted to see how this new finding of blood in the stool has impacted your view of the case and your differential. Um, And the primary team would also like to see if there are any additional tests you would recommend and want to discuss whether antibiotics should be initiated. Yeah, so it's really important to distinguish non-bloody or watery diarrhea from a bloody diarrhea because it really, the pathogens that can lead to bloody diarrhea are distinctly different than the ones that are watery. Um, I mean, in general, in children, when I when I hear about a GI illness um, that's watery, a lot of viral etiologies are a consideration. Um, you know, I didn't mention those previously, but 
things such as norovirus are, you know, quite common. We see a good bit of that even within the hospital. And, you know, as being an infection control person, we always worry about norovirus outbreaks because it's, it could just be so highly contagious. Uh, but then when you put it in the realm of this patient now having bloody diarrhea, you think about either pathogens that are enteroinvasive or something that's toxigenic um, that could cause some local damage and, and lead to the bleeding. And then, of course, you know, if, if this patient had had some um, antibiotic exposure prior to this, you have to consider C. diff as a possible etiology. And then, of course, you also think about non-infectious things, such as maybe this is a first-time presentation of an inflammatory bowel condition, um, or even some anatomic things that can lead to bleeding. And can you talk a little bit about diagnostics, Um, you know, when to send stool cultures? And I think the other question that comes up is when and if to send the multiplex stool PCR that is available in some institutions. Um, Because I think that question comes up a lot and sometimes people aren't quite sure how we should use these tests. Yeah. Yeah. So the diagnostics... um are, it's, it's an interesting question. And now that I think particularly, you know, at, at bigger centers that have ready access to these multiplex assays, uh, I think people sometimes use them pretty indiscriminately and just sort of um, test what, whomever, whenever. Um, so if you have a, uh, generally, you know, if you're in the outpatient setting and a patient who has maybe some watery diarrhea, some vomiting, and it's short-lived, I don't think that there may be as even a role for doing diagnostic testing in that setting. Um, you know, and for a patient like the one that we have in our case scenario who has um, the bloody diarrhea, so you know that obviously makes us think about um, some pathogens that have some potential um, significant um, complications, and so diagnostics would be more helpful in that situation. And the multiplex assays are helpful, very helpful in that you know, sort of with one test, you can have an assessment of multiple um, pathogens, not only bacterial pathogens, but viral pathogens, even parasitic pathogens as well. Um, But they do have some major drawbacks. So one, one is that you may detect something there, a molecular portion of an organism there, but you don't necessarily know if that's a viable organism. So is that truly, you know, the active cause of that patient's symptoms at that time, you would only really know that if you're able to cultivate the organism. Um, And another significant drawback is that you don't get any susceptibility testing with your multiplex assays. So if it is a pathogen for whom you want to offer some antimicrobial therapy, you don't know the resistance patterns and you don't know what what drug you you can or can't use. Um, And then lastly, and I I find this particularly pertinent as an infection control person. Um, If you want to do molecular typing to try to do some outbreak investigation, um, you cannot do that with with these multiplex assays. So I I definitely think that there's a continued role for doing stool culture in order to get the answers that you can't get from the multiplex assays. So here are our lab results. So he has leukocytosis with a white blood cell count of 28,000. He has thrombocytopenia with platelet count of 130, anemia with hemoglobin of 10.8, and creatinine of 2.4 milligrams per deciliter. Stool cultures have been sent and are pending, but now we're concerned about E. coli infection and possible hemolytic uremic syndrome. Due to concern for HUS, a peripheral blood smear was obtained 
and revealed presence of schistocytes. Um, so can you give us a brief overview of the various types of diarrhea producing E. coli strains? Sure. Well, so for this patient, um, the biggest concern would be that he has an intrahemorrhagic um, E. coli. Principally, you know, in the United States, the biggest concern would be for a, a shiga toxin-producing E. coli, of which the most common one would be 0157H7. And, and certainly with the, the bloody diarrhea, it would be consistent with that. Um, there are other enteroinvasive E. coli that maybe don't necessarily carry the shiga toxin gene, but um, can also cause bleeding, um, so the, the bloody stools. And then we think about other um, E. coli that are perhaps more common in um, developing countries or resource-poor countries. So for there's enterotoxigenic um, E. coli, which you can see in um, traveler's diarrhea and enteropathogenic E. coli. So um, it, the, you know, in terms of distinguishing, you know, some of them are more likely to cause bleeding than others, um, but the travel or exposure history is really pertinent in terms of trying to narrow down. If you have somebody who hasn't really traveled and, um, and has just been in the U.S., the most common one would be an enteroaggregative um, E. coli. So HUS, like you mentioned, is most commonly associated with STEC 0157H7, particularly strains producing shigatoxin 2. And so HUS is known for its triad of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, rhombocytopenia, which we saw in our patient, and acute renal dysfunction. Approximately 15% of children under five years of age with lab-confirmed E. coli 0157 infection will develop HUS, and it typically develops seven to 14 days after onset of diarrhea. And unfortunately, over 50% of children with HUS require dialysis with a three to 5% mortality and risk of neurologic complications. So antibiotics with STEC and HUS can be a controversial topic. Can you tell us how you think about antibiotic treatment in this setting? Right. So, um, if you're worried about an STEC infection, I think most experts would recommend against antibiotic treatment. Um, and that's because there have been some studies that have shown an association between receipt of antibiotics and the progression or the development of HUS. Um, so, um, you know, there haven't been any randomized controlled trials looking at children with STEC infections and some, you know, and giving some antibiotics and others not to, to definitively answer that question. Um, but the, in general, most experts believe that the risk is too high and so will not treat. Um, and so it, it makes it a sort of an interesting scenario when you don't know what the organism is, um, because, you know, you, you maybe falsely think that you could offer some benefit for empirically treating, um, where you can actually cause some harm. And so, um, I think we're very cautious in pediatrics to to give antibiotics for a diarrheal illness as a result. Yeah, you know, I think it's hard because a lot of times these kids are going to look sick or they're going to look septic and it kind of goes against the instinct to want to give antibiotics because um, it's kind of hard to tease apart, I think, early on how much of this is due to infection or how much of their changes are due to the underlying HUS. Yeah, absolutely. And, and particularly, you know, sometimes I find in some of these scenarios, uh, there's a little bit of a difficulty in distinguishing whether the patient has hypovolemic shock versus whether 
they have true septic shock. And of course, if you think they might have septic shock, you would of course want to give them antimicrobials. Um, and so um, it, it is, it is it's sort of a fine line. Now, of course, like if this patient is, if you're concerned for septic shock, then by all means, give them <laughs> antibiotics. But if you're in a situation where you don't, you know, you don't have compelling reason to provide antibiotics, it's, it's better to hold off. So we'll wrap up this case by thinking about prevention and infection control. Um, so what are the key points to remember about the epidemiology for STEC infections? So from an epi standpoint, um, you always have to think about transmission. So where can folks get this, right? Um, and so um, this organism is a part of um, the intestinal tract of ruminant animals, so particularly cows and deer, also sheep, food products that could either come from those animals or be contaminated by those animals are the things that you have to potentially worry about. Um, so in particular for um, cows really are probably the, the number one um, um, animal that we're concerned about. And hamburger meat is really um, an important one because during, during the food production process, it can be contaminated with the intestinal flora of the cow. Um, so you need to make sure that um, hamburgers are cooked to an adequate temperature um, in order to make that pathogen non-viable. But also if um, these animals are sort of in any um, area where, the, where fruits or vegetables are being cultivated, um, their droppings in those locations could potentially contaminate fruits and vegetables. So thoroughly washing fruits and vegetables is really important. I always think about the, there was an outbreak associated with, um, I think, some apple cider. And it, they ultimately found that it was deer who had um, sort of been grazing um, on the, like in the apple pasture and, um, and had sort of, you know, defecated in this, in this location and had contaminated stuff with, with E. coli 157H7. Um, so um, pasteurized products are really important, including, including, and so, I mean, of course, in Nike, we always think about pasteurizing dairy products, but pasteurizing fresh fruit products like apple, apple cider, apple juice is, is important as well. Some important preventative things in terms of the, the foods we can we consume, and then other sort of it, this always goes for infection control, right? But but hygiene and in particular hand hygiene, right? You always want to have clean hands prior to eat, you eating, right? Uh, if you have children, I have I have three, and I've changed many diapers in my life. Um, <laughs> but um, appropriate, you know, cleaning of hands after using the bathroom or after changing someone's diaper is uh, super important. The, the humans aren't sort of the natural carriers of these pathogens. If they have infection, then they, they can easily transmit to others. Yeah. I didn't even think about, you know, pasteurizing apple cider. Um, <laughs> like dairy is definitely comes to the top of mind when I think about pasteurization, but it's good to know. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, here, here in Texas, we, um, you know, we have a lot of people who travel down Cross the border and go to Mexico, and they always bring back queso fresco, and you know they always worry about things like embovis and brucella. But but yeah, now you can add the pasteurized juices to your history. <laughs> okay, so case number two: a mother arrives at the emergency room with her nine-month-old daughter, who she says has had a very high fever. Mom says that the fever started about a day ago, and in addition to the fevers, she has also had watery diarrhea. 
Patient was a full-term baby with uncomplicated labor and delivery and past medical history thus far. She has been hitting all developmental milestones. She is on an alternative vaccine schedule, so her parents were unsure about her receiving all her vaccinations. Um, she has not received her Haemophilus influenza type B and Streptococcus pneumoniae vaccine. Upon arrival to the ED, her temperature was 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit. She is somewhat fussy with her fever, but otherwise her, her physical exam is unremarkable without rashes or obvious abdominal discomfort. She is interactive and is moving all extremities well. The child is admitted for observation and started on IV fluids for dehydration. Unfortunately, in the middle of the night, the baby starts having seizures. The nurse on call said that the seizure lasted for three minutes per discussion with a primary team who saw the patient about 15 minutes later, she appeared well. The primary team is very concerned about meningitis or encephalitis now given the new seizures. What would be your approach to this infant and your ID concerns at this point? This is a great case. Um, and sorry, remind me how old she is again? She's nine months old. So I, I, whenever I do my differentials, I go from worst case scenario to best case scenario in my head. Um, so, you know, you gave us this concerning history about this vaccine hesitancy, and obviously this child is not up to date for um, some of the um, pathogens that we can offer protection to from a meningitis standpoint, right? So you tell me she's not up to date on her HIV vaccination or her strep pneuma vaccination, and so anytime a child has a new onset seizure in the setting of fever, as an IV physician, I can't help but think about meningitis or encephalitis, right? And particularly when she, she is more at risk being not fully vaccinated. Um, so that's, that's obviously a significant concern. The um, you know, other possibility is, does she have this febrile um, diarrhea illness um, that may be just maybe she's somebody who is prone to have febrile seizures. So that would be probably the best case scenario, right? So this is just a child who is in that age group of when we typically see febrile seizures, six months to six years of age, um, in which case maybe just the, the GI illness alone, maybe lowered her threshold to, to have a febrile seizure. More rarely, you can have some diarrheal illnesses that are associated with some neurologic complications. The classic one that we think about is Shigella, um, and that's not because it's invasive necessarily or you know, because there's direct meningitis from Shigella, um, and actually the etiology is not really quite known, uh, but there has been an association with, uh, with seizures and Shigella infections. Now, Shigella infections, more classically, you think is one of the ones that can cause uh, bloody diarrhea, and you didn't give me that history for the patient. So um, uh, difficult to know, but this patient for sure um, would need an LP to do CSF analysis and make sure that you can exclude meningitis for this patient. Okay. So the team begins the LP and while the LP is being performed, the baby has an episode of diarrhea. And upon examination, there is now blood in the stool. So you send the stool for culture, but while we're waiting, what do you think of this new finding? So that that's definitely interesting, and that makes me, you know, definitely consider um, Shigella as a possibility now because now now we have the true bloody diarrhea that you know that was more sort of expected. Yeah, you definitely touched on that during your differential. And so here it is. <laughs> so fortunately, she has no further seizures and the LP was not concerning for bacterial meningitis. 
and she was ultimately found to have a stool culture positive for Shigellosinii. So is this a common presentation for Shigellosis? And can you walk us through your illness script for Shigella infection? Sure. Um, so as I, as I mentioned, you know, classically, we think of it as one of the, the pathogens that can cause a bloody diarrhea, although all the ones that can cause a bloody diarrhea can have presentations where they're just more watery, right? And so anytime you have um, somebody with diarrhea, you kind of have to go through the whole pathogen list. That this this is one where so typically with Shigella is kind of interesting because it has a, a sort of big colonic presentation, meaning that you have a lot of stools, but they don't tend to be very high volume stools. So um, so you can run into issues with dehydration, but maybe not as much as some of the other pathogens that that can cause really large volume stools and, and dehydration. Uh, but a febrile presentation is common. Um, and, um, though complications, you know, most Shigella illnesses are self-limited, um, but patients can have complications. So in particular, if you have more risk factors, such as being immune compromised, um, you can run into issues with, um, things like bacteremia with other, um, focal infections elsewhere. Um, and then these neurologic complications such as seizures. Okay. So to, to wrap up this case we want to ask um, about how we manage these patients and which cases of Shigella require treatment since, like you said, there are some that are self-limiting, but then there are other cases that are that have more complications. Yeah. Um, well, certainly if you've identified a focal infection somewhere or bacteremia, you're going you're gonna to need to treat that invasive infection. The other sort of scenario, there, there is some evidence in contrast to the other organism that we talked about. Um, there's some evidence that treating could shorten the duration of illness and really importantly can shorten the duration of shedding of the organism. Um, because with Shigella, um, you can shed up to, in children, sometimes up to four weeks, even after having resolution of the clinical illness. Um, and you can imagine, for example, what a nightmare that would be like in the daycare setting, right? Um, so, um, so there's, so I guess severity of illness would be one um, in terms of uh, shortening, um, providing therapy for, and then potentially shortening that shedding as well. Shigella is interesting because um, the, the more you read about it, it more can, can become a little scary in terms of its antimicrobial susceptibility patterns because there are reports of resistance to certain antibiotics. So, so if you have susceptibility results available, um, common things like ampicillin, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole might could be good options as long as you can prove that you have you're susceptible to those. There is increasing resistance to ciprofloxacin, for example. Um, so while it's still ciprofloxacin is still one of the drugs that you could consider as impaired therapy, you can you you should at least have some concern that maybe your organism is not susceptible. Azithromycin is another um, antibiotic that we typically think of as a potential empiric therapy. It's less likely to have resistance than things like ciprofloxacin, but um, but again, even more emphasis on the fact that you know, we talked about these multiplex assays previously, even more reason to have your cultures and your susceptibility results so you can truly know what, what's appropriate from a therapy standpoint for your patient. So for both of these cases and really diarrhea in general, I think there are a couple questions that come up all the time. So I just want us to end by addressing those. 
Uh, the first one is regarding the use of antidiarrheals and when or if to use those. Yeah. And children just say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I knew the answer to this one would be short, but I had to throw it in there because I feel like it just always comes up. Yeah, it does. It does. Right. And particularly, I think, importantly, I think from a parent standpoint, right, because they Parents can be very disturbed with any yeah. changes in bowel movements, right? Whether it's too much or too little. And so I think they they sort of have a natural inclination to want to give them something to make the symptomatology end. But you can you can increase the risk of complications by giving them an antidiarrheal. You can prolong shedding by giving them a diarrheal. Um, so they're, they're really, in, in the setting of pediatrics, there's really no role for them. So the second common question that comes up uh, you know, not necessarily when they're in the hospital, but also as a page to the on-call fellow is thinking about return to daycare or return to childcare settings. Um, and I know that most of us don't have these memorized, but I think just talking about where to look this up and how you counsel parents or outside pediatricians that might call in with this question. Absolutely. Yeah, super important question. It, it makes me think about, I had a, a med school professor who told us that when we think about daycare, we should just think about it covered in a thin layer of feces. <laughs> um, and I've never, I've never been able to get that out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> but it is true. I mean, you have incontinent children there. And so the likelihood of this being a clean environment is very, very low. Um, therefore, very important if somebody has a pathogen um, to not introduce them back into that environment until until you know that or you have some confidence that um, that they're no longer shedding um, the organism. So um, truly, it varies. One, it varies by organism in terms of the recommendations of when they can go back. And also there's jurisdictional differences. So there may be some state requirements that vary you know, what we do in Texas may be different than what you guys do in New Jersey, but different than what you guys do in Massachusetts. Um, so you, you probably almost always have to defer to your, your state's jurisdiction. But the Red Book is actually an excellent source. Um, they have a specific chapter about returning um, to childcare and, and not just diarrheal illnesses, but other pathogens too, in terms of how, how much time from symptomatology or whether you need some um, documented culture negativity prior to returning. Um, so um, for the organisms that we discussed before, um, for an STEC infection, um, the Red Book, I think, says two, day, two negative cultures prior to returning, in addition to improvement of the symptomatology and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, kind of almost return to, to normal bowel movements. Um, for Shigella infections, I believe the Red Book says one negative culture um, and improvement of symptomatology as well. So, um, so really, I mean, the bottom in line is there's going to be different recommendations based on your pathogen. Go to the Red Book um, to see what's recommended. Yeah, I think most Peds ID fellows have probably bookmarked that page in the Red Book. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to read what's in the actual comments and what does it mean to say the child is, quote, symptomatic or better? Um, and so the language talks about it's okay to return if stools are contained in the diaper or if the kiddo is toilet trained. And the Red Book also identifies continent with no more than two stools above baseline. But I think the important point here is to counsel that children may still have loose stools. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like you said, 
is the stool contained in a diaper or toilet? And is the child pretty close to back to normal? And so I just had to add that because despite how many times I've read that table, I still have to look it up every single time to check myself. Yeah, absolutely. No, no. But, it, but super important um, details, right? Because, um, you know, if you're having blowout diapers, uh, that's just, you're just go back. <laughs> yeah. And this was great. You know, I, I realize that these cases are pretty much bread and butter. And we often are not even necessarily seeing a lot of these patients in the hospital or on our consult teams. But I still think it's valuable for us to think through these straightforward cases and make sure we have a good understanding. Um, and so as we wrap up, I just want to give an opportunity to make sure you don't have any additional points you want to add to these cases or other uh, take-home points. Um, you know, one thing that, so I, I briefly touched on hand hygiene. Um but I wanted to, to maybe make another sort of specific point about hand hygiene because, you know, in the hospital setting, we use um, hand sanitizer probably most frequently just because it's um, a good product and, and sort of readily usable. But um, don't forget that if you have, if you've had direct contact with a bodily fluid of a patient, the recommendation is truly that you do hand washing, right? Because um, you, you're not going to be able to sort of rid yourself of the contaminant of your hands. <laughs> um, so, so for example, if a nurse is doing a diaper change, um, they probably should be washing their hands. Um, but, but in, as an infection control person too, I always think about the two pathogens for which an alcohol um, hand sanitizer is not going to be efficient. And that's C. diff and norovirus. Um, um, because the, the alcohol just won't kill that organism or the spores of the organism, you really need to do a proper soap and water hand washing. Um, so I guess in terms of the preventative measures, I just wanted to sort of bring up that point in terms of, um, don't take your hand hygiene for granted and sort of think through when, when it's appropriate to wash or when it's appropriate to do a hand sanitizer. Yeah, that's a great reminder. You know, unfortunately, we, we've had some neurovirus um, outbreaks uh, at this institution and um, like like probably every other hospital has had. But, you know, we go and we police. We, we actually have previously put sort of X's like tape around the hand sanitizer so people can't use it. Oh, and then bleach, bleach products too, important in those settings um, in terms of disinfection. So um, just kind of keep in mind that certain pathogens are going to require certain hygiene measures. Well, thank you guys so much for coming today and teaching us about GI illnesses. Of course. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening. And I want to give an enormous shout out to Evelyn, who created this episode as a medical student. As always, I will plug our website, febrilpodcast.com, where you'll find the written complement to the show known as console notes, as well as a ton of ID infographics. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future guests or episode topics, or if you want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.